Thank you very much, Jerry, and thank you all for your welcome. I'm relieved to say that though this computer had my lecture on when I left it here, it seemed to disappear when Professor McDermott was speaking, but it's now reappeared, so that's all right. Uh, Jerry mentioned my work in the House of Lords. I was in the House of Lords last Tuesday before setting off to come here in a debate which was started and wound up by the Lord Chancellor, which is one of the great offices of state in the British Parliament. And when the Lord Chancellor is on official duty, he wears some very splendid ancient robes which make him look like a figure from some century long past. And it was about 25, 30 years ago, I guess, when Lord Hailsham was the Chancellor of, uh, of England, that one day he came out of his office in the House of Lords dressed in all his finery and in the corridor, and there are many complex corridors around Parliament, he came face to face with a party of American tourists who were being shown around the place. And at the same time, behind the tourists, there opened another door and a man emerged who was a member of Parliament by the name of Neil Martin, who was MP for Buckingham at the time, and he was a friend of Hailsham's. And Hailsham wanted to attract Neil Martin's attention, so he raised his hand and shouted, Neil! <laughs> and, of course, the tourists all did. <laughs> so you see the kind of reflections that an Englishman has coming from the House of Lords to address a bunch of Americans on a Friday evening in Roanoke. Thank you for your welcome. It's great to be here. Maggie and I are enjoying your wonderful hospitality. I have been asked to address tonight one of the most important questions that anyone can ever ask, that of what happened on the first Easter day. Perhaps predictably, we have to fight our way through some undergrowth even to get to the question itself. Part of the difficulty is the massive confusion that exists in our society today about the whole question of what the word resurrection itself actually means. And that is part of the confusion about what death itself is and about what we might be supposed to believe happens to people after their death. I observed this confusion in my own country in a number of incidents over many years. Think of the reaction of the public to the death of Princess Diana in 1997. It was a huge outpouring of grief, and I think I went on around the world. And people, when they wrote things in books of remembrance, and when they spoke on the radio or spoke to me as a pastor, they said all sorts of extraordinary things. God didn't have enough angels in heaven, so he called Diana to go and be another one. Or... When I look up at the sky tonight, there'll be a new star in the heavens, and that will be Diana. And I wondered, did they actually mean that? Was that metaphorical? Did they actually mean it literally? There's an enormous amount of confusion about death and what it means and what happens afterwards. And similar stories could be multiplied endlessly, and you will all have your own, I expect. And over in uh, this part of the world, I know that there are some people who report sightings of Elvis and that kind of thing. There's... <laughs> There's no accounting for what strange things people believe. And the enormous tragedies of September the 11th, of that Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, the New Orleans floods the following year, suddenly when people are faced with death and destruction, they start to ask questions and they assume they know what the church says about these things, but often they really don't. The church has talked endlessly about going to heaven as the ultimate goal of human existence. 
But many today find that the idea of sitting around on clouds, plucking at harps, or simply resting all the time, as some hymns imply, doesn't appeal today as it seems to have done to our forebears in an era of hard physical work for most people. And our hymns and our prayers have constantly emphasized, fit us for heaven to live with thee there. And he leads his children on to the place where he has gone. You open the hymn book almost at random and you'll find that that's the end of the game, is just to go to heaven. And so when people open the Gospels and find in Matthew's Gospel Jesus talking about people inheriting the kingdom of heaven, they assume within our contemporary culture that this means going to heaven when they die. But it doesn't. As Matthew makes quite clear, the kingdom of heaven is a way of talking about the sovereign rule of the one true God coming to pass on earth as in heaven. It's nothing to do with life after death or nothing very much. It's got everything to do with the purposes of God for the transformation of the life before death, life here and now and at the same time. For what I have called, and I think this is very clear, but people often find it confusing, so I'll explain it, what I have called life after life after death. Life after life after death. What is heaven after all in the Bible? Heaven is not an ultimate goal in the Bible. Heaven is part of God's created reality. It is God's space. And the point is that one day this heavenly reality is to be united with our world, with earth, transforming both of them in the present. That's what we're promised in the Old Testament and in the New. And if that is what we're promised, then the life that people will enjoy in that future world is not purely a heavenly existence. It's an existence in God's new heavens and new earth joined together. A life, a bodily life after whatever sort of life after death there may be. So how can we get our ideas sorted out? And how can we discover in the middle of all of this exactly what did happen three days after Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified? To get at this, I find it helpful to go back and ask, what did people in that world believe about death and what happened afterwards? Where did the early Christians' belief about life after death fit on the spectrum of what other people thought and believed. Now, I've set this out in much more length in my book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's the longest of the books that I've written that uh, Professor McDermott was mentioning. It's uh, just under 800 pages, I think, of text. And I have to tell you that when I gave it to my father, who was, I think, 84 at the time when it came out, he read it in three days flat, bless him. He's retired long since and has got nothing to do but read theology all day. What a wonderful life. And at the end of the three days, he phoned me up and he said, I've finished it. And I said, you what? He said, I've finished it. He said, and I'll tell you what, I really started to enjoy it after about page 600. So it's one of the most interesting sideways compliments I've ever had. I said, it's like a, it's like a tree. It's got a large root system. And only with that root system is the trunk of the tree going to stand up. And so I'm just going to give you a tiny vignette of what's going on in that root system because you only understand what the disciples meant when they said Jesus is risen from the dead when you get your head round what that language meant in that culture. Now, 
what, did, what was resurrection and life after death doing in the ancient world, ancient pagan and Judaism? Well, as far as the ancient pagan world was concerned, the road to the underworld ran only one way. Death was all-powerful. You could neither escape it in the first place, nor break its power once it had come. And everybody in the ancient pagan world knew there was in fact no answer to death. The ancient pagan world then divided into those who, like the shades in Homer, might have wanted to come back and get a new body, but knew that they weren't going to. And those who, like Plato's philosophers, didn't want a body again because being a disembodied soul, getting rid of the body, was a much better option. Within that world, the word resurrection never meant life after death. Resurrection always referred to a new bodily life back in this world again, after whatever had happened to you immediately after death, life after, life after death. Now, the ancient pagans didn't believe that resurrection was possible. You know that story of the underworld, uh, going down to the underworld to find your lost bride, Eurydice, the lost bride, and Orpheus goes down to find her, and he's told that he's allowed to lead her back up from the underworld, but on one condition, while they're walking back up this long pathway, if he turns and looks to see his beloved again, then she'll be gone. So he goes down and he says, yes, okay, that's fine. And he's bringing her back. And halfway up this long path, his desire for his beloved gets the better of him. And he turns and he looks and she's gone. And you see, it's a sad old myth, but it's a way of telling the story which says death is in fact a one-way street. We can imagine what it might be like for somebody to come back from the dead, but we know it doesn't happen. Actually, I found a poem recently which was a feminist retelling of that story in which Eurydice all the way up was whispering sweet nothings to him to make him look back because the last thing she wanted was a man in her life again. So resurrection was a way of saying that's what would be a new bodily life after life after death, but we know it doesn't happen. Now, the ancient pagans knew about ghosts and spirits and visions and hallucinations. There's a lot of literature which describes those things. That's not what somebody means by resurrection. If you say it's a ghost, that's not the same thing as a resurrection. Resurrection means bodies. What about the ancient Jewish world? Now, there's a spectrum of belief there, too. Some Jews in the first century agreed with those pagans who denied any future life, especially a re-embodied one. The Sadducees, the first century Jewish aristocracy, are famous for taking this position. No future life, certainly not an embodied one. Other Jews, like the philosopher Philo, agreed with those pagans the Platonists, who believed in a glorious but disembodied future for a soul. But most first century Jews, so it appears, believed in an eventual resurrection. That is, God would look after the soul, after death, until the time when God remade the whole world, when, of course, he would give his people new bodies to live within that new world, life after, life after death. 
That is the world within which early Christianity burst upon the scene as a new thing, and yet not entirely new. What did the early Christians believe about what happened after death? What, where, what, did, what was their future hope? Where does resurrection fit in? How does it work? The early Christians didn't just believe in life after death. You know, often today people talk about believing in heaven and hell as one of the key shibboleths of being a Christian. I should apologize, by the way, to the signer. I have no idea how you sign the word shibboleth, but I'm sure you're doing it really well. <laughs> I, Madam, had I known you were going to be there, I would have given you a, a copy of the script, and I'm sorry. There we are. Heaven and hell, however, is just a rough and ready way of saying something which in the Bible is more complex and actually more interesting. Because the early Christians don't talk much about what's going to happen immediately after they die. They talk more about the ultimate future when God's new world happens and people will be raised from the dead. When Jesus tells the brigand that he will join him in paradise next day, that very day, today you will be with me in paradise, paradise cannot be the ultimate destination. Luke 24 makes it clear that Jesus, three days later, is raised from the dead. He hasn't stayed in that temporary holding place. When Jesus declares in John 14 that there are many dwelling places in his father's house, the word for a dwelling place in Greek doesn't refer to your ultimate home. It refers to a temporary wayside lodging where you go and stay en route for the final destination. The early Christians held firmly to a two-step belief about the future. First, death and what lies immediately beyond. Second, a new bodily existence in a newly remade world. Now, there's nothing remotely like this in paganism. This belief is as Jewish as you can get. But within this Jewish belief, there are seven, no fewer than seven, early Christian modifications, each of which crops up in a diverse range of Christian writers right across the first two centuries AD. And this is more important because what people believe about life after death tends to be very conservative. When you're faced with bereavement or grief, people lurch back for safety to what they have heard or learned from their families, from their traditions. But all the early Christians articulate a belief which in these seven ways is quite new. And this is the sharp point at which the historian has to ask, why? Why did they do it like this? Each of these, like everything I'm saying tonight, could be spelt out at much more length and indeed is in the big book to which I've already referred. So I'm just going to summarize them. The first of these modifications is that within early Christianity, there is virtually no spectrum of belief about life beyond death. There isn't a, a spectrum in which different people believe different things. Christianity looks to this extent like a variety of Pharisaic Judaism, not like Sadducees, not like Philo, certainly not like the pagans. The New Testament mentions some people who are muddled at this point, some who think the resurrection, the resurrection has already happened, but those muddles don't seem to have lasted very long. We have good evidence for early Christian debates on all sorts of topics, some of them fierce and sharply polarized, but virtually, virtual unanimity about resurrection. 
That's the first modification. The second modification is that in Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of that period, resurrection is important, but it's not that important. Lots of lengthy Jewish works of the time never mention the question, let alone the answer. It's still difficult to find out what the Dead Sea Scrolls thought about resurrection or not. People believed in resurrection, but it wasn't at the center of their thoughts. But in early Christianity, resurrection has moved from the circumference to the center. You can't imagine Paul or John without it. Belief in bodily resurrection, interestingly, was one of the two things that the pagan doctor Galen in the second century knew about the Christians. So there's this funny group of people, and they, 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 believe, they actually believe in resurrection. The other thing he knew about them, interestingly, was their remarkable sexual restraint. For them, resurrection was absolutely central. The third mutation within the Jewish worldview at this point has to do something with more organic about what resurrection actually means. In Judaism, nobody is very precise about what sort of a body people are going to have when they are raised from the dead. There's some confusion on that. You can affirm resurrection, but it's not clear whether it's a body exactly like this one or whether it's going to be something utterly, as we would say, supernatural and glowing or luminous or whatever. But from the start within early Christianity, it is built in as part of a belief in resurrection that the new body, though it certainly will be a body in the sense of occupying physical space and time, will be a transformed body, a body whose material created from the old material will have new properties. Particularly, it will be incorruptible, incapable of decaying or dying. That's the third mutation within the Jewish view of resurrection. The fourth mutation is that resurrection as an event has split into two. First century Jews expected the resurrection as something that would happen to all God's people at the end of time. The early Christians agreed that that would happen, but they said that it had also happened in advance to one person, Jesus, in the middle of time. There's no precedent for that in Judaism. The fifth mutation is what, in dialogue with me, the scholar and writer Dominic Crossan called collaborative eschatology. That's a wonderfully heavy-handed, clunky term. But what does it mean? The early Christians believed that if resurrection had begun with Jesus and would be completed in the final great resurrection on the last day, they believed, therefore, that God had called them to work with him in the power of the Spirit in the present to implement the achievement of Jesus and thereby to anticipate the final resurrection and to do this work in personal and political life, in mission and holiness, collaborative eschatology, something which has already started to happen, God's new world, God's new creation, and God now collaborating with his people in taking that project forward. That's a new thing in Christianity. The sixth mutation is the different metaphorical use of the word resurrection. When the word resurrection is used metaphorically in Judaism, it refers to the restoration of Israel after exile, as in Ezekiel 37. But from the earliest days of Christianity, that meaning has more or less entirely disappeared, and in its place we have a new metaphorical meaning of Christianity to do with baptism as dying and rising with Christ, and a new life of strenuous 
continuous ethical obedience enabled by the Holy Spirit, a life to which the believer is then committed. Now, again, metaphorical usages like that don't just happen. Somebody has reflected on what those words now have to do, the jobs required. This is a new thing from within Judaism, but a new thing that no Jews until the early Christians had ever imagined. And the seventh and last mutation from within the Jewish resurrection belief was its association with Messiahship. Nobody in Judaism had expected that the Messiah would die. So nobody imagined that the Messiah would rise from the dead. Yes, there are some Old Testament texts to which the Christians appeal, but it appears that nobody had read them in that way until the Christians came along. And this leads, you see, to a remarkable modification, not just of resurrection belief, but of messianic belief, which becomes rethought around Jesus and his death. No Jew with any first century regular understanding of messiahship could have imagined after his crucifixion that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Lord's anointed. But from very early on, the Christians said, Jesus is indeed the Messiah, precisely because of his resurrection. Let's just step aside from the argument for a moment, having got those seven, to make a hugely important point. You may not know it, but we have evidence of several other Jewish messianic or prophetic movements during the couple of centuries either side of Jesus' public career. Routinely, they ended with the death of the central figure. Members of the movement, always supposing they got away with their own skins, then faced a choice. If your leader has been killed, either give up the movement or get yourself another Messiah. Had the early Christians wanted to go the latter route, they had an obvious candidate. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, who was a great and devout teacher. He was a central figure in the early Jerusalem church. For the first 30 years of Christianity, he was it. But nobody ever imagined that James might be the Messiah. Josephus, the Jewish historian, describes him rather contemptuously, but echoing the language that people must have used of him as the brother of the so-called Messiah. Now this means that we can already rule out some very common suggestions. Many have proposed that the early disciples were so overwhelmed with grief at Jesus' death that they picked up the idea of resurrection from their surrounding culture and clung on to that. Maybe he's been raised from the dead, maybe, maybe. And then finally persuading themselves it was true and then going out and telling people that it was true. Some have suggested that the earliest, Christians, the earliest Christians believed that after his death, Jesus had been exalted to heaven. And then they gradually started to speak about resurrection because of that. Or that they had a sense that they had to carry on his mission to bring in God's kingdom. And that that made them say he was raised from the dead. But would that make any sense? We can test it out with a little thought experiment. In AD 70... Forty years after Jesus' death, the Romans conquered Jerusalem and they led thousands of Jews captive back to Rome, back including the man they regarded as the king of the Jews, the leader of the Jewish revolt, a man called Simon Bargiora. Simon was led into Rome at the back of Titus's triumphal procession, and at the end of the spectacle, as everyone knew was going to happen, the king, the rebel king, the leader of the enemy, was flogged and executed. Now, supposing we imagine 
a few Jewish revolutionaries three days or three weeks afterwards. Somehow they've managed to escape being killed themselves and they're in hiding. And one says, you know, I think Simon really was the Messiah and I think he still is. And the others are puzzled. Of course he isn't. The Romans got him. They killed him. That's what they do to people. If you want a Messiah, you better find another one. Ah, says the first, but I think he's been raised from the dead. What do you mean, his friends ask? He's dead and buried. Oh no, replies the first, I believe he's been exalted to heaven. The others look very puzzled. All the righteous martyrs, all those who have died for their faith, of course they're in heaven with God. Everybody knows that. The souls of the righteous are in the hands of God and there shall no torment touch them. Famous Jewish text. That doesn't mean they've already been raised from the dead. It means they will be one day. Resurrection isn't something that happens to one person in the middle of history. No, replies the first, you don't understand. I've had a strong sense of God's love surrounding me. I've found God forgiving me for running away. I've felt my heart strangely warmed. What's more, last night I really thought that Simon was there with me. And the others interrupt and they're now angry. We can all have visions. Plenty of people dream about recently dead friends or family members. Sometimes that's very vivid. That doesn't mean they've been raised from the dead. It certainly doesn't mean that one of them is the Messiah. And if your heart has been warmed, then for goodness sake, sing a psalm. Don't make wild claims about a dead man. That is what they would have said to anyone offering the kind of statement which, according to the revisionists, the skeptics, somebody must have come up with at the beginning, as the beginning of the idea of Jesus' resurrection. But this solution isn't just incredible, it's historically impossible. Had anyone said any of those things that revisionists have suggested, some such conversation as I've just given you would have ensued. A little bit of disciplined historical imagination is all it takes to blow away enormous piles of so-called historical criticism. What is more, to round off this seventh mutation from within the Jewish belief that I've just done a riff out of the side of, because of the early Christian belief in Jesus as Messiah, we find the development of the very early belief that Jesus was Lord and that therefore Caesar wasn't. That's a whole other topic for another occasion. But already in Paul, the resurrection both of Jesus and then in the future of all his people is the foundation of the Christian stance of allegiance to a different king, a different lord. Death is the last weapon of the tyrant. The point of the resurrection, despite much misunderstanding, is that death has been defeated. The tyrant's last weapon has been trumped. Resurrection is not the redescription of death. It is the overthrow of death. And with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on their ability to deal in death. Despite the sneers and slurs of some contemporary scholars, it was those who believed in the bodily resurrection who were thrown to the lands and burnt at the stake. Resurrection was never a way of settling down and becoming respectable. The Pharisees could have told you that. Resurrection was always bound to get you into trouble, and it regularly did. So I have now noted seven major mutations within the Jewish resurrection belief, each of which became central within the Christianity of the first two centuries. 
The early Christian belief in resurrection remains emphatically on the map of first century Judaism rather than paganism. But from within Judaism, it has opened up a whole new way, unprecedented, of seeing everything. And this demands a historical explanation. Why did the early Christians modify the Jewish resurrection language in these seven ways so consistently? When we ask them, they of course reply that they did it because of what happened to Jesus. And this projects us on into the next part of the lecture, which is of course to ask, so what must we then say about the very strange stories which they tell about that first Easter day? When we plunge into the stories of the first Easter day, the accounts that we find in the closing chapters of the four canonical gospels, we find that the stories of Easter don't fit snugly together. How many women went to the tomb and at what point? And how many angels or men did they meet there? Did the disciples meet Jesus in Jerusalem or in Galilee or both? And so on. But surface discrepancies don't mean that nothing happened. Indeed, they are a reasonable indication, as any student of law court evidence will tell you, that something remarkable happened, so remarkable that it generated quick, rapid-fire tellings of the story, which were precisely not scrunched down so that they all agreed with one another, but were allowed to stand in their original vividness. I want to draw attention to four strange features of the stories about the first Easter day, which compel us to take them seriously as very early accounts. In the world of scholarship that I've inhabited now for many years, those of you who've studied any of that will know that there is a huge range of ways of suggesting that actually the Easter stories were fiction that they were made up much later, that they come maybe from the end of the first century, some 40 or 50 or 60 years after the events. These four features, I suggest, indicate that on the contrary, these stories are very early. First, note what I call the strange silence of the Bible in the stories. Up to this point, all four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have drawn heavily upon their old, the Old Testament, as we call it, the, the Hebrew Scriptures. They quote, they allude to passages, they echo bits of Scripture in order to make it clear that Jesus' death was according to the Scriptures. But the resurrection narratives are almost entirely innocent of such echoes, with only one or two small exceptions. And this is the more remarkable in that from St. Paul onwards, the common creedal formula declared that the resurrection too was according to the scriptures. And they are ransacking the Psalms and the prophets to show that the resurrection was intended by God all along. But why do the gospel resurrection narratives not do the same? It would have been very easy for Matthew or John or whoever to, to quote some texts that this strange event was fulfilling. Now, you could say, of course, that whoever wrote the stories in the form we now have them had gone through cunningly and taken material out to make it look as if they were very old before anyone started doing biblical exegesis. Rather like someone going through a house and taking out all the electric fittings to make it look as if it was a, a pre-electricity early 19th century house or whatever. But the normal assumption among scholars that the stories grew up as late as the 80s or 90s of the first century would require us to say that. 
Now, that might be marginally plausible if we had just one account or if the four accounts were obviously derived from one another. Answer is we don't and they aren't. You have to imagine four very different writers each deciding to write up an Eastern narrative, removing all the biblical echoes and allusions. Very silly. It's infinitely more probable that the stories, even if they were written down a lot later, go back to very, very early oral tradition, which had been formed and set in the minds of different storytellers before anyone had had any time for biblical reflection. The second strange feature of the stories is more often remarked upon, and it's the presence of the women as the first witnesses at the tomb. Whether we like it or not, and we don't, of course, women were not regarded as credible witnesses within the ancient world. Notice what happens already by the time Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, early 50s, say, when the tradition has had a chance to sort itself out and acquire fixed forms, Paul tells the story of what happened on the first Easter day, 1 Corinthians 15, and the women have been airbrushed out of the account. They've gone. They are apologetically embarrassing. But there they are in all four gospel stories, front and center. They are the first witnesses. Nay, they are the first apostles. Nobody would have made them up. Had the tradition started in the male-only form that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, it would never, ever have developed into the female-first stories that we find in the Gospels. When we see Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Easter morning, we know that must have happened. Nobody would ever have made it up. The third strange feature is the portrait of Jesus himself. Many revisionists have tried to make out that the gospel stories developed either from people mulling over the scriptures and then imagining a resurrection or from an experience of an inner subjective illumination. But if that had happened, the one thing you would expect is for the risen Jesus to be shining like a star. That's what Daniel says will happen. That's what an experience of inner illumination might have generated. But interestingly, none of the Gospels say that about Jesus at Easter. Indeed, he appears as a human being with a body that is in some ways quite normal. He can be mistaken for a gardener or a fellow traveler on the road. Yet, the stories also contain, and this marks them out as among the most strange stories ever written, they contain definite signs that this body has been transformed. It's clearly physical. It has used up, so to speak, the matter of the crucified body, hence the empty tomb. But equally, it comes and goes through locked doors. It is not always recognized. One of the strangest moments in the resurrection stories is when, in John chapter 21, Jesus is cooking breakfast by the shore and the disciples come to shore and John says, None of them dared ask him, who are you, because they knew it was the Lord. Now, that's extremely odd. They'd been with him for three years, day and night. You don't say just a few days later, who are you? And yet there was something different, something very much the same and something very different. Now, this kind of account is without precedent. There are no biblical texts which predicted that the resurrection would involve this kind of body. It's a complete innovation. Why? The fourth strange feature is that the resurrection accounts themselves never mention the future Christian hope. 
Almost everywhere else in the New Testament, whenever you find mention of the resurrection of Jesus, it's spoken of in direct connection with the final hope that those who belong to Jesus will be raised as he has been raised, and with the note that this must be anticipated in the present in baptism and behavior. Now, I don't know how many of you here in this hall tonight are preachers, but I've heard lots and lots of Easter sermons which say something like, Jesus is raised, therefore there is a heaven and we'll be going to it after we die. Or, better, Jesus is raised, therefore God's new creation is a reality and we will one day inherit it. Interestingly, neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke nor John say that. Oh, that's true, Paul says it, it's there in the New Testament, but not in the resurrection narratives themselves. In those narratives it says, Jesus is raised, therefore he really is the Messiah, he is the world's true Lord. Jesus is raised, therefore God's new creation has begun and we've got a job to do and we better get on with it. Once again, had the stories been invented towards the end of the first century, this interpretation would certainly have included a mention of the final resurrection of all God's people. These four pointers brief as I've given you them, mean that we can conclude that it is far, far easier to believe that the stories are essentially very early, prior to Paul's writings, and that they have not been substantially altered except for light personal polishing in subsequent transmission and editing. Matthew's resurrection story is very Mathean. John's resurrection story is very Johannine. But this is like saying that here's a portrait which is obviously by Rembrandt, and here's a portrait which is obviously by Holbein, but they're of the same person, and they haven't made this person's nose a different shape. They haven't changed the color of their hair. It is still clearly the same portrait, even though by different artists. And this is the more or less universal witness of the early Christians. They were who they were. They told the stories they told, not because of a new private religious experience or insight, but because of something that had happened. Something that had happened to the body of the crucified Jesus. And something that they at once interpreted as meaning. That he was, after all, the Messiah. That God's new age had, after all, broken into the present time. And that they were charged with a new commission. Something which made them reaffirm the Jewish belief in resurrection, not swap it for a pagan alternative, but introduce several distinctive but consistent modifications within that belief. And it's now time to ask in the third section of this lecture, what can the historian say about all this? I begin with what I regard as fixed historical points. The only way we can explain the phenomena we have been examining is by proposing a two-pronged hypothesis. First, Jesus' tomb really was empty. Second, the disciples really did encounter him in ways which convinced them that he was not simply a ghost or a hallucination. Let me just say a brief word about each of those, the tomb and the meetings. First, if the disciples had simply seen or thought they saw someone that they took to be Jesus, that without an empty tomb would not by itself have generated the stories that we have. 
Everyone in the ancient world took it for granted that people sometimes had strange experiences involving encounters with the dead, particularly the recent dead. There's plenty of stuff in ancient literature about that. They knew at least as much as we do, probably more, because in our post-enlightenment world we've screened it out and tried to pretend it doesn't happen. They knew at least as much as we do about visions and ghosts and dreams and the fact that such things often occurred within the context of bereavement or grief. They had language to describe such things, and that language was not resurrection. However many such visions they'd had, they wouldn't have said that Jesus was raised from the dead. They weren't expecting such a resurrection. In any case, this is a point people often ignore or conveniently forget. Jesus was buried according to a particular Jewish tradition, which was designed to occur in two distinct stages. First, you carefully wrap up the body with spices and linen and put it on a shelf in a cave. There'll be other shelves because you'll be coming in to bury other bodies. That's why you have the spices, because of the smell. But when the flesh of that body has decomposed... You then, and that might be six months to two years later, you then go back and you collect the bones and you fold them up in a prescribed order with the skull on top and you store them in a bone box, an ossuary. If Jesus had not been raised, sooner or later, someone would have had to go and collect his bones and fold them up and store them. Even if anyone had been suggesting that he'd been raised from the dead, Doing that would be enough to disprove the suggestion. Any apparent meetings with Jesus that anyone has had would then have been dismissed. You've obviously just seen a ghost. Likewise, an empty tomb by itself without meetings with Jesus proves almost nothing. Tomb robbery was common in the ancient world, especially where somebody had been famous or conceivably somebody thought they were royal. People might have buried treasure with this person. In any case, many have suggested it might have been the wrong tomb, though a quick check would have sorted that out. It might have been somebody taking the body away, the soldiers, the gardeners, the chief priests, other disciples or whoever. That was the conclusion Mary drew in John's Gospel. They've taken him away and perhaps it was the gardener. That was the conclusion the Jewish leaders put about according to Matthew. His disciples stole him away. All sorts of similar explanations could have been offered and would have been had not the empty tomb been accompanied by sightings of and meetings with Jesus himself. No. In order to explain historically how the early Christians came to hold the belief they did about those mutations in resurrection faith and then their belief that Jesus had been raised and that that was the generation of it, We have to say at least this, that the tomb was empty except for some grave clothes and that they really did see and talk with someone who gave every appearance of being Jesus. A Jesus who was strangely changed, more strangely than they were able fully to describe, but was very much alive, was very much embodied, very much with them. So the meetings on the one hand and the empty tomb on the other are each necessary if we are to explain the rise of the belief and the writings of the stories as we have them. Neither by itself would be sufficient. Empty tomb without meetings wouldn't do. Meetings without empty tomb wouldn't do. Put them together and they provide a complete and coherent explanation for the rise of early Christian belief. 
Is there an alternative explanation which would get us off the hook of saying that the ancient pagan view, resurrection is impossible, was wrong, along with its modern equivalents? No. I just want to note very briefly that the main alternative accounts, the revisionist proposals, lack explanatory power. Take the phenomenon of so-called cognitive dissonance. I don't know if you've heard about that, but quite a lot's been written about this over the last half century or so. Cognitive dissonance, as studied by social psychologists, is supposedly what happens when people want badly something to be true, but are faced with strong evidence to the contrary. And so they manage to leap over the data that point the wrong way and they become even more strident in announcing their claims. Now, that theory has some initial plausibility. There are some interesting examples from history of people behaving in that way. But theories like this cannot serve as an explanation of the early Christian phenomena. In fact, the research on which the original theory of cognitive dissonance by a man called Festinger and others uh, was deeply flawed, as I and others have shown elsewhere. But more particularly, it doesn't fit the state of affairs at Easter. The disciples were not expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead for the very simple reason they certainly weren't expecting him to be crucified. The fact that they were first century Jews and that resurrection was, as some people have said, in the air at the time, simply doesn't account for the radical modifications that they introduced into Jewish resurrection belief or for the astonishing features of the Easter stories that I've just laid out. In the same way, some have suggested that the early disciples had, as I said before, a new experience of grace, that they felt forgiven in a new way. They'd come to a new faith in the power of God, a new conviction that God's kingdom project was still going ahead despite Jesus' death. But that too simply won't work. If you had a new experience of grace, that doesn't take you one step nearer at all, saying that the leader that you'd followed had been raised from the dead. Judaism already had a rich language for uh, wonderful new spiritual experiences, and it doesn't include resurrection. There are many other smaller arguments that people have advanced from various angles. I've tried to study as many as, many as I can. Other scholars have written about these in more detail. I think of the work of Gary Habermas or of William Lane Craig, who've made lifelong studies of the kinds of arguments that people put up against the resurrection. Let me just summarize a few of them show that I haven't forgotten them. First, Jesus didn't really die. Someone gave him a drug which made him look like dead, and he revived in the tomb. Answer, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm a Roman historian. Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. That was their job. Uh, anyone who let a would-be Messiah or king of the Jews escape half dead would not survive very long themselves. And in any case, no disciple would have been fooled by a half-drugged, beat-up Jesus into thinking that he had defeated death and inaugurated the kingdom of God. Second, I met this in a book not long ago. When the women went to the tomb, they met somebody else. And it was one of Jesus' family, maybe James, who was Jesus' brother, so he looked a bit like Jesus. And in the half-light, they thought it was Jesus himself. Sorry, they would have noticed soon enough. Third, Jesus only appeared, I often meet this, Jesus only appeared to people who already believed in him. That's simply wrong. The disciples were not expecting that he would rise from the dead. 
And particularly, Thomas in John 20 and Paul on the road to Damascus very firmly didn't believe and had to be convinced despite themselves. Fourth, people often say, well, the accounts that we have are all biased. They're all written by Christians, so they would say this, wouldn't they? Answer, so is all history and all journalism. Every photograph is taken by somebody from some angle. There is no such thing as a point of view which is nobody's point of view. Saying that this account is written from a point of view just says it's an account. Now let's discuss its content. Lots of others. and Perhaps the most popular, what actually happened, some people say, was that they had some rich spiritual experience and that they thought that Jesus really was alive spiritually and that they were still in touch with him. That is simply a re-description of a noble death followed by a platonic immortality. I'll say it again. Resurrection was and is the defeat of death. Resurrection is not just a nice, fancy description of death. It is something that reverses the effect of death. What's more, it's not something that happens at death. It's something that happens sometime after it, life after death life after death. Equally, I just want to put on the table a few of the small-scale arguments which are often and quite rightly advanced to support the belief that Jesus must have risen from the dead. The first one is Jewish tombs, especially the tombs of martyrs, were regularly venerated and often became shrines. People went and said prayers there. There is no, we know quite a bit about the early church. There is no sign whatever that anyone ever venerated Jesus' tomb, at least within the first couple of centuries. Of course, three or four centuries later, it was rediscovered, if it was, and a basilica was built over it conveniently. So you now, now can go and visit it if it really is the real one. Second, the early church's emphasis on the first day of the week as their special day is very hard to explain, granted their Jewish context, unless something striking really did happen then. If it was just a gradual dawning of faith over weeks and months and years, that wouldn't have been enough to kickstart a change in one of the most central symbolic features of Jewish life. Thirdly, a point which is often made, the disciples were hardly likely to go out and suffer and die for a belief that wasn't firmly anchored in fact. And all this brings us face to face with the ultimate question. The empty tomb and the meetings with Jesus are as well established by the argument I've advanced as any historical data could expect to be. And they are, in combination, the only possible explanation for the stories and beliefs that grew up so quickly among Jesus' followers. But... How, in turn, do we explain them? Why was there an empty tomb? Why was there a meeting or several meetings with Jesus? In any other historical inquiry, the answer might seem so obvious that it would hardly need saying. Unfortunately, here, of course, the obvious answer, which is, of course, well, because it actually happened, is so shocking, so earth-shattering, that we rightly pause before leaping out into the unknown. So many misunderstandings have grown up at this point that it's impossible even to mention them here, let alone guard against them. And in addition, we do well to heed the warnings of those theologians who have cautioned against any attempt to stand on the ground of rationalism. We are just thinking reasonably, rational historical inquiry, and the attempt to prove in some mathematical fashion something which, if it happened, 
ought itself to be regarded as the center not only of history but also epistemology. In other words, not only of what we know about the past but of how we know anything at all. If it's true, it must be like that. But granted that caution, to which I'll come back in a moment, all the historical signposts are pointing in the same direction. I and others have studied the alternative explanations, ancient and modern, for the rise of the early church and the shape of its belief. And far and away, the best historical explanation is that Jesus of Nazareth, having been very thoroughly dead and buried, really was raised to life on the third day, with a renewed body, not, please note, a resuscitated corpse. People sometimes say, well, we don't believe in a resuscitated corpse, so it must have been something spiritual and non-bodily. That misses the point. We're not talking about the resuscitation of, of a corpse. We're talking about a new sort of bodily existence for which there was no precedent and of which there remains no subsequent example. That's very frustrating historically, but that is precisely what the accounts are trying to say. It was a new kind of physical body which left an empty tomb behind it because it has, as I said, used up the material of Jesus' original body and it possessed new properties which nobody had expected or imagined before but which generated those significant mutations in the thinking of those who encountered it. If something like that happened, if, then that would perfectly explain why Christianity began why it took the shape it did, why the early Christians believed what they did. Now at this point, the historian, insofar as she or he is a historian, finds themselves like the children of Israel beside the Red Sea. Behind are the forces of skepticism, saying we're coming to get you. Pharaoh's hordes, mocking and shouting. Ahead is the sea, representing chaos and death, forces which nobody is supposed to be able to beat. What are we to do? There is no way back. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism against the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. The alternative accounts are remarkably thin, and many of them are actually laughable. But history alone, certainly as conceived within the modern Western world, appears to leave us shivering on the seashore. It can press the question to which Christian faith gives an answer. But if someone chooses to stay between Pharaoh and the deep sea, I don't think history by itself can force them further. That's an important point. Everything then depends upon the context within which the history is being done. The most important decisions we make in life are not taken by post-enlightenment, left-brain rationality alone. Worldview issues are at stake here, and they are not to be dealt with by the old liberal strategy of pretending that to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is impossible for those who accept one, what one writer has called current paradigms of reality. If that means capitulating before the worldview of Hume and other Enlightenment thinkers, I reply that precisely now in the 21st century, there are all kinds of reasons for questioning those current paradigms. In any case, it's wrong, as we've seen, to imply that the choices between an ancient worldview and a modern or even a postmodern one, the ancient worldview of Homer, Plato, Cicero, and all the rest, knew perfectly well that resurrection didn't occur. 
Belief in resurrection isn't an ancient worldview which we in the modern period now must reject. It's a Jewish and more specifically a Christian view which ancient people and modern people find impossible to believe unless, unless, unless there really might be a God of creation and justice, a God who will set the world right, a God who will do new things and bring about new creation. You see, I don't want to give the impression that you can simply argue right up to the central truth of Christian faith by pure human reason, building on simple observation of the world. Indeed, it should be fairly obvious that you can't do that. Equally, I wouldn't suggest, as some do, that historical investigation of this sort has no part to play so that we can forget all the history I've been doing and simply take a blind leap of faith. No, God has given us minds to think. The question has been appropriately raised. How did Christianity begin and why did it take the shape it did? Christianity appeals to history and to history it must go. And the question of Jesus' resurrection, though it may in some senses burst the boundaries of history, also remains within them. And that is precisely why it is so important. It's so life and death. We could cope. The world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a wonderful idea inside the disciples' minds and hearts. The world cannot cope with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb, with a Jesus who inaugurates God's new creation right in the middle of the old one. That is why, for a complete approach, we have to locate our study of history within a larger complex of human, personal, and corporate settings. I am aware that for many people today, it is still assumed that faith lives in a private sphere, shutting itself off from history, lest history make unwelcome inroads. And for many others, history insists on running everything by a closed chain of visible cause and effect, which is never open to anything new happening. But what the Easter stories do is to pose a huge question. And we need to set our asking of that question, ultimately, in dialogue with the life of the community that believes the gospel and seeks by its life to live out its truth. We need to set it within the reading of the scriptures, which by their whole narrative lay out the worldview within which it does make sense. We need to think it through within a context of personal openness to the God of whom the Bible speaks, the creator of the world, not simply a divine presence within it, the God of justice and truth. These, please note, are not substitutes for historical inquiry, nor are they lame supplements to it, as though to say, well, history will take us so far, and then we need a God of the gaps to cover the last bit. That's not what I'm saying. These are ways of opening the windows of the mind and the heart to see what might really, after all, be possible within God's world, the world not only of creation as it is, but also of new creation. History, as I've said, brings us to the point where we are bound to say there really was an empty tomb, there really were sightings of Jesus, the same and yet transformed. And history then says, so how do you explain that? It offers, offers us no easy escapes, no quick side exits. They've all been tried and they, none of them work. History poses the question. And when Christian faith answers it, then a sober, humble, questioning history, as opposed to an arrogant rationalism that's already made its mind up, may find it saying, sounds good to me. 
The story of Thomas in John chapter 20 will serve as a parable for all of this. Thomas, like a good historian, wants evidence. He wants to touch and see. And Jesus presents himself to his sight and invites him to touch. But Thomas doesn't. He transcends the type of knowing that he thought he'd been going to use. And he passes into a higher and richer one, which brings history and faith together in a rush. My Lord, he says, and my God. Or take the story of Peter in John 21. Peter famously had denied Jesus three times. He had chosen to live within the normal world where tyrants win in the end and where it's better to dissociate yourself from nuisance-ish ideas that get you into trouble. But now with Easter, Peter is called to live in a different kind of world. And if Thomas is called to a new kind of faith, the question to Peter is, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Here I think of a remarkable line from that great philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. It is love that believes the resurrection. There is a whole world in that question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? A world of personal invitation and challenge, of the remaking of a human being from top to bottom after disloyalty and disaster, of the refashioning of how we know things corresponding to the refashioning of reality in God's new creation. You see, the reality which the resurrection is cannot simply be known from within the old world of decay and denial of disloyalty and death. But that's the point. The resurrection is not, as it were, a highly peculiar event within the present world, though it is that as well. It is principally the defining, central, prototypical event of the new creation, the world which is born with Jesus. And if we are even to glimpse this new world, let alone enter it, we will need a different kind of knowing, a knowing which involves us in new ways, an epistemology which draws out from us not just the cool appraisal of detached quasi-scientific research, but the whole person engagement and involvement for which the best shorthand is love in the full Johannine sense of agape. Now the skeptic will at once complain that that's just collapsing the whole thing back into subjectivism and emotion once more, if it's love. Not so. Just because it takes agape to believe the resurrection, that doesn't mean that all that happened was that Peter and the others had their hearts strangely warmed. Precisely because it is love that we are talking about. It must have a correlated reality in the world outside the lover, or it isn't love. Love is the deepest mode of knowing because it is love that, while completely engaging with a reality which is other than itself, affirms and celebrates that other than self reality. And this is where our normal modernist epistemologies break down. And that is why, though the historical arguments for Jesus' bodily resurrection are very strong, we must never suppose